Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. Hi, this is Tony Fletcher, host of One Step Beyond. Like the vast majority of podcasts, this show is essentially a labour of love. It does cost money to produce and host, however, but we don't run generic ads because, frankly, they suck. We don't take random sponsorship either, and we're not pushing a Patreon page for bonus content. So, if you like what you hear, please consider showing your appreciation by leaving a small donation in the tip jar. Just look for the supporter badge in the show notes of whatever app you're using or go to supporter.acast.com forward slash one step beyond. Yes, tipping online involves more effort than throwing a coin in the busker's hat, but that's the digital age for you. Thank you. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! And welcome to what is already episode 30 of One Step Beyond, a show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. This episode, we're returning to one of the short travel stories I wrote about my round-the-world, ten-and-a-half-month backpacking trip with then-wife and then-eleven-year-old son back in 2016. It hadn't initially been my intention to read these stories on this show, but I've gotten positive feedback every time I've done so, and there appear to be a few more where the first ones came from, and besides, it's time for us to talk about this type of travel again, because the world does appear to be slowly, cautiously, tentatively opening back up. I have travelled internationally already in 2021. Admittedly, the trip was only from my one homeland, the USA, to my original homeland, the UK. But hey, any journey feels like a big deal these days, and so I'm happy to report I made it there and back in one piece. It was wonderful to see some friends and explore some new terrain in the process, and the travel itself was not desperately complicated. I even had a row to myself on both transatlantic flights, Man, does that make a difference. And with being vaccinated, and with a decent majority of fellow Brits and Americans also being vaccinated, I felt quite safe undertaking the journey. That doesn't mean I can travel to some of the far-flung destinations I would like to this year, but my living and working situation doesn't currently allow me to jump off at a moment's notice anyway. The -the round-the-world trip in 2016 involved years of planning and a certain amount of career and accompanying financial sacrifice all of which was repaid, as far as I was concerned, in spades by the experiences we had along the way. Especially as I finally got to visit continents I had never yet stepped foot on, despite being, and man, I hate to admit it, but actually life is really good fun at this age, I assure you, 50 at the time. And so, as some of us do consider commencing travel to new destinations, there's something I'd like us all to consider. We often plan our trips, I believe, with great expectations in mind. We expect to have some kind of epiphany in a single place, in a single moment, a kind of earth-shattering visual experience, what they once called a Kodak moment, but you might now consider as a potential Instagram post gone viral. Now, there is some credence to this thought process, because there are certain sites in the world that do genuinely stop you in your tracks. For me, the one that comes most readily to mind is right here in America, and it's the Grand Canyon. 
For all that I'd seen my share of pictures and read my share of raves, nothing could prepare me for my first glimpse of the canyon while driving through the National Park there, trying to find our campground back in 2012. The canyon exposed itself through a gap in the roads, conveniently as the sun was dipping, and it was truly jaw-dropping, the single most psychedelic experience of my life. There are some man-made objects that can induce similar awe. The Eiffel Tower has that effect on people. Like the first time you actually find yourself looking up at it from close by on the streets of Paris, you really are like, what the? And one that combines nature and man is Sigiriya in Sri Lanka, which conveniently popped up on my Microsoft Surface login page this very morning, I promise you, prompting me to say, I know that absurdity. But travel is not about these world-renowned sites that take your breath away, because they are genuinely so far and few between. They are the exceptions, not the rule. The joy of travel is largely to be found in the sum of its parts, and those parts are very often the almost humdrum elements that make up a single day. I found myself thinking about when we profiled Trevor Warman, the nomadic backpacker as he calls himself, on this show, on episode 16. He's someone who has spent most of the last 20 years on the road and asked to define the attraction of the constant travel. He got to talking about just sitting on a bus in Africa, watching the world go by and feeling fully alive in the process. Great travel experiences are indeed very often, indeed most often, about these moments in between destinations. They come from those days where you simply aspire to get from A to B, but where, as you'll hear in the following story, getting from A to B means going via C with additional detours, distractions, disappointments and inevitably some delights en route. Great travel experiences are much less about summiting something like Mount Kilimanjaro, though that is the stated purpose of your particular trip. It's actually about the journey you take through another country to attempt that summit. The people that you meet and get to know along the way, whether they be your guides, porters or other travellers. Similarly, when we trekked Nepal in the Himalaya to Annapurna Base Camp in 2016, while there was enormous satisfaction at reaching that camp, at feeling nestled in for a few hours amongst that vast range of seven snow-capped mountains all above 7,000 metres, give or take a few metres, and while yes, that was a photographic moment if you had a camera that could do it panoramic justice and my old iPhone certainly could not, the journey was much more about saying namaste, like hundreds of times a day to everyone you met as you walked. It was about being huddled under hot blankets in the common areas of tea houses in the evening, conversing with people from all countries and all walks of life. It was about daring to take a cold shower to stay clean in the morning. It was the sound of mules trotting downhill with bells on their necks or yaks blocking your track on the way up. It was about having dal bark for dinner every night and falling in love with it. It was about getting lost when we added a day on the way down and ended up at a tea house taking shelter in a hailstorm alongside the family's sheep. It's about slowing down, about losing touch with the rest of the world, about finding one's rhythm, both physical and internal, on one's daily trek, finding a kind of peace that simply can't be sold as a woo moment because it has to be felt. Travel is, per my last short story, which was set in India, about not going out with a guide, even if you ask for one, because to do so would remove all the risk and adventure. Travel is about letting go willingly of the control you might claim to exert over your life at home. Travel is about finding yourself in the city of Misuru in India or Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and deciding you hate your westernised hotel breakfast 
going out and finding a better alternative on the street, and then going back to that same alternative the next day and the day after, so that the local hosts come to expect you. And for just a few days, they become your friends, your bellwethers, your connection to that community. Fulfilling travel is about the sense that you've immersed yourself in a different culture. It's about the satisfaction you get at the end of every day, knowing that for all the challenges that culture presented you, you got through it. You had an experience or two in the process. And now you've arrived somewhere new, and tomorrow is a brand new day to be filled with brand new, similarly small, and ultimately collectively enlightening experiences. It's about how, when you're faced with the tourist option or the traveller option, and yes, there is a distinction, though I'm not intending to start a flame war about it, you take the traveller option. And this choice is best summed up by the times you opt for local public transport over private tourist transport. The following short story, A Travel Day, is all about that. It's set in Morocco, the third of the four stories I've read from our 10 days in that country. That's maybe because it came early in our travels and I felt like I knocked these particular stories into shape. Look, I wanted to write much more about this trip and actually I did so. But some of it gets much more personal and isn't necessarily the kind of thing I would just read to strangers on a podcast as a standalone story. But hey, let me know what you think and we'll see where future episodes take us. So with that, put on your walking shoes or sandals, zip up your backpack, check you have your wits about you and buy yourself a ticket as we prepare to go. One step We're up early. We don't have a choice. There's the small matter of a mosque next door to our dar. It's called to prayers, amplified by a loudspeaker pointed directly at our room from above. I make the most of the dawn alarm by going for a short run on the foothills of Jebel El Kalar, the mountain against whose steep western cliffs the town of Sheshawan is nestled. The previous day, we climbed as high as we could on the road that led out of town to a national park, winding up and across back and forth until we met a footpath dragging back to the peak, an additional journey of several miles way beyond our capabilities for a single, sunny, sultry, unsheltered day. We tried to consider that it was less of a do-not-finish than a job well done. This morning, from the ridge that leads out above Chefchaouen, I get but a brief view of this blue pearl of Morocco, as the town is fondly labelled for its brightly painted architecture, which runs a range of hues to match those of the crystal sky. I will forever refer to it instead as Chil Chefchaouen, a place of remarkable calm and tranquillity in a country that otherwise thrives on caffeinated energy. I am back at the Dar from my run in time to have a farewell breakfast with our new friends from the Pacific Northwest. We'd met them on our first morning here and had bonded quickly as I sought to justify taking a year out with our son. No need to justify it to me, Dylathan had cut me off. We did the same with Vanessa years ago. It must have worked. She's at university now in Australia. Vanessa is sitting next to him as he says this, but the point holds. The family have opted to hold their winter reunion in Northern Africa. It must have seemed, if not, as convenient and certainly as much fun as anywhere else. 
Donovan has a boat building business and routinely spends his off months somewhere in the world other than Oregon. He exudes that kind of all-American, can-do confidence that extends to renting a car here in Morocco. Ah, the drivers aren't as bad as you're led to believe, he assures me. He'd driven down to the desert and back in the last week, so I figure he knows what he's talking about. The other Americans at our breakfast table, indeed, the only other guests, and it's already a strange coincidence that they should be from the same homeland as ourselves, considering that Americans generally don't travel internationally, have just returned from the desert for their own part. A night in a Saharan so-called oasis is a popular tourist catch, and one we're setting off for today, albeit the long way round, via a night in Fez. Amanda and David are from San Francisco, in their early 20s, and they hired a driver to bring them back the previous day. You should do the same thing, Amanda tells us. It only costs us $100. Now, 100 bucks to transport two people, in private, across a distance of over 400 miles is a bargain by any standards. Well, at least by Western standards. But as I seek to explain, spending $100 a day on private travel is not part of our own budget. Not if we plan to be on the opposite side of the world, in New Zealand, come American Election Day, some 10 months from now. That's why I'd run down to the bus station yesterday afternoon, after our hike up El Calar, and despite being worn out from it, so as to get us bus tickets to Fez instead. Except that they were sold out already, today being a Sunday and Chef Shawan being a midway point from Tangier, so we're headed to Fez via the transport hub of Sidi Qasem instead. The conversation shifts to the carpet our new San Franciscan, I guess their friends, bought on their travels. That too cost about $100. Another bargain, as far as they're concerned. It's worth so much more than that, says Amanda. They told us we could sell it for a vast profit in the States. Donovan and myself, and our wives too, I believe, offer a look in response which communicates what any spoken words may not. Every guidebook warns against falling for the promise of a bargain amongst the eager carpet sellers of North Africa. That the assurance of profitable resale value is a false one. That at best you're buying an expensive souvenir. Well, we love our carpet, says Amanda, in response to our cynical and silent expressions. And that is good enough. When it's just you and your partner and your disposable income and you're young, then being a tourist and spending accordingly is one of the greatest luxuries in the world. One that you may only know you ever had once you swap out that disposable income for kids. Enjoy it while it lasts. After breakfast, after completing our packing, we splurge for a taxi nonetheless. Albeit ours is only to take us as far as the Chef Sharon bus station a couple of miles down the hill from where a Fez-bound bus is due to leave at noon. The operative word here is due, because the bus does not leave at noon. It leaves when it feels like it, at least an hour later if not two, by which point, after sitting and standing around in the midday sun, the bus station being open to the elements and it being pretty warm here even though it is only January, we're somewhat hot and bothered and mildly irritated. And once the bus does leave then the journey itself, though only a hundred miles, proves absurdly long, stopping at seemingly every village en route. 
I passed the time studying the girls who board at the outskirts of Chef Sharon and sit in the aisle seats in front of me. They're clothed in not quite regulatory, but best wear them all the same headscarves and long tops that cover their arms. But they complement these traditional requirements with fashionable jeans. They flash cheap bling on their wrists and fingers, and they sport lurid covers to the cell phones upon which they fixate their own undivided attention, updating their Facebook feeds and instant messaging like their lives depend upon it. The bus takes a short break at a cafe in another medium-sized town, and though I'm not looking to eat, I go on in, while away the time with the menfolk inside, watching English football. It's second-tier stuff, but that's still better than the Moroccans can watch in local stadia, and there are dozens of men, and only men, all sitting in rapt silence. Though that may be the effects of the widespread cannabis use in cafes as much as the excitement of the game at hand. When I re-emerge, I see our driver chasing off an incoherent and clearly aggressive young man with a couple of near-contact kicks and punches. Not quite fierce enough to constitute bodily harm, but sufficiently bold as to get the message across. The youth disappears from sight. Somewhat disarmed, I reboard the bus. There, I find the colour rather drained from my wife's face and our 11-year-old son looking confused and uncertain. The errant youth, it turns out, had boarded the bus during our break and after wandering up the aisles had verbally assailed my wife. So, she has concluded, for the sin of not covering her arms and hair like the bling-wearing, lurid phone-covered Moroccan teenage girls around us. We finally pull into Sidi Qasem somewhere around four o'clock. We have long missed the connection to Fez and it's now a matter of figuring out our options. As we descend from the bus, a welcoming committee of taxi drivers, snack sellers and assorted relatives and friends of the other passengers offer advice. It's at moments like this that Noel grips his parents' hands a little tighter and I steel myself to project a false sense of self-confidence. But the taxi drivers are surprisingly comfortable at recommending public transport options. The next bus is not until after six, they confirm, and it will take at least two to three hours. The train is our best bet by far. I also have the train schedule with me. The ticket seller at the bus station gave it to me yesterday, perhaps all too aware of the bus route's tardiness. It tells me that the train leaves in five minutes. We won't make it. Ah, the train is always late, friend, one of the local taxi drivers assures me. In the excellent English I'm beginning to discover is almost universal among Moroccans who have even the minimum of interaction with travellers. You have plenty time. Here. Come with me. He finds and assigns us a uniformed employee of the bus station who, after prevarications we can't quite compute but which wastes several valuable minutes, finally walks us to a taxi with instructions to take us to the train station. A navigation I'd like to believe, based on a lifetime of urban living and constant movement, I could have pulled off for myself, and perhaps with an additional ten minutes in hand. Sure enough, we reach the train station on the other side of the otherwise dull and uninspiring Sidi Qasem at the same time as the train to Fez comes rattling down the tracks. We rush to the ticket office and I open my mouth to ask for three tickets to Fez, at which a young man dashes in from behind us, throws cash at the ticket clerk in front of us, shouts his destination, grabs the ticket in return, runs to the platform and boards the train ahead of us. 
My 17-year-old self, no slouch at such last-minute antics, would have been impressed. My 50-something self is annoyed, but doesn't say anything. Once the youth is gone, the ticket clerk works as fast as he can with our Moroccan currency, hands us three one-way tickets and shouts to the ticket collector on the platform to hold the train. The ticket collector in turn shouts to the guard to hold the train while we run to the platform and the guard on the train closes the door before we can board and the train departs without us, seemingly more intent on making up on its late status than allowing three more paid customers to embark. The ticket collector says several words in Moroccan, none of which I presume to be praising Allah for his mercy. Damn. I say, trusting that this particular word is universal. When is the next train to Fez? He points to an electronic board hanging above the platform. Seven o'clock, he responds, frowning. It is now 4.30. We can't wait that long, I say. I have to figure something else out. No problem, he says. Go to the ticket office. We'll refund you. And the ticket seller does just that, without question and without delay. For all that the train is running late and for all that it's still decided to leave without us, the Moroccan transport system does at least allow for an instant refund. Outside the station, we find the same taxi driver that deposited us there five minutes earlier and we have him take us back, more or less, where we came from. The Grand Taxi Rank, near the bus station. I use the word rank for lack of anything else readily available in the English language. It's a road with a number of beat-up, mostly Mercedes, station wagons and a number of males talking to a number of potential passengers of both genders and all ages, directing them to various vehicles for various agreed prices. I have the cost of the Grand Taxi in my pocket alongside the train and bus schedule. The ticket seller in Chef Shaun obviously wanted to ensure I knew my options. Of course, the price he wrote down bears little resemblance to the one I'm quoted here on the streets. It is, in fact, approximately half as much. When I try to point this out that I'm sure they're overcharging me, the taxi handlers suddenly forget the mastery of English they demonstrated just a few seconds earlier and focus on other, more willing passengers. With no bus or train to Fez for hours and a Riyadh at the other end that they expect us to check in by now, we have no choice but to meet their price. The difference, by the way, is a pittance. I'm haggling out of a sense of duty. The word grand in Grand Taxi is similarly up for clarification. It refers not to level of comfort, but purely to a vehicle's size. This, however, is also something of a misnomer, as even a Mercedes station wagon is still designed for just five people, a driver and four passengers. Naturally, six passengers are crammed into the car that soon departs for Fez. I share the front seat with the grinning teenage son of a conservatively clad woman who sits in back, her daughter on one side of her and a grimacing wife of my own, Noel in her lap, on the other. Personally, I'm unfazed. For one thing, I've expected journeys like this on our travels. For another, I did my own share of car cramming in South London in my teens after the pubs had closed and the last buses had disappeared and the walk home seemed longer than made sense. Needs must and all that. I was also guilty in my youthful days, 
though fortunately never in a court of law, of driving at excessive speeds, for which I can only plead immaturity and stupidity, which are much the same thing, plus a love of driving fast. That said, I'm not sure I've attempted, nor encouraged anyone else, to drive from one city to another, on a single-lane highway that climbs hills and studiously avoids straight lines where a zigzag will do, at a speed of 70 miles an hour or higher, in a car containing 50% more passengers than legally allowed, the two in the front seat physically unable to attach their single seatbelt, presuming it was ever working in the first place. Given that our driver does not have the ignorance of youth as his excuse, I can only assume he knows what he's doing, i.e. that he drives this route often enough to know it's every twist and turn. And I have to hand it to him, he completes the journey without killing us. Yes, he does appear determined to overtake every car that has the audacity to be driving in front of him, preferably on a hairpin turn while playing chicken with the oncoming truck that inevitably comes racing around the corner head on. And yes, the colour is drained from my wife's face every time I turn to look at her after one of these incidents, and no, the driver does not speak a word of English and appears to have less than any interest in accommodating my requests for information about our destination as I put in periodic cell phone calls to our English-born Riyadh host in Fez. And yet, there's clearly a protocol to the man's driving technique, much of it based on the assumption that if you honk loud enough and often enough, other vehicles will bow to your right of way. And it is by this method that he makes the journey of over 60 miles, several of them in urban traffic, in under 60 minutes, delivering us at the station in Fez in one collective, slightly shaken, but otherwise intact peace. There remains just one problem, and it's one that I only ascertain upon calling our English host once more upon arrival. His insistence that we can walk from the bus station to meet him at the Bar Baloo the blue gate that marks the historic entrance to the oldest continually inhabited Medina in the world, is challenged by my own insistence that I don't recognise the tourist landmarks he's referencing. It takes a few minutes on the phone for us both to realise that the bus station we have been dropped at is the one on the other side of Fez. We're still miles from our destination. This late in the evening, there is no choice but to spring for another taxi. Sure enough, the six-minute ride around Fez costs about the same as did the Grand Taxi for the previous 60 miles and 60 minutes from Sidi Qasem. It is one of the maxims of world travel. The closer one gets to one's destination, the higher the cost of transportation. Still, we have made it, and not just to any old town, but once our host Jeffrey escorts us through the Babaloo, into the ancient walled city of Fez el Bali, the oldest continually inhabited Medina in the world. Founded back in the year 787, with claim inside these walls to the oldest university in the world, Fez prides itself on being Morocco's cultural capital. A city of over a million people, it certainly has the pedigree and we instantly feel the weight of history upon us as we follow Geoffrey along one of the Medina's two main thoroughfares and then off into its warren of winding alleyways. We are not experiencing culture shock as such. We stayed within the Medinas in both Tangier and Chefchaouen, but they were small by comparison. Fez al-Bali is vast, a city unto itself despite the equal hustle and bustle of the Ville Nouvelle outside its walls. And yet its thoroughfares are barely wide enough for the donkeys and nonetheless appear to be the primary mode of transportation. 
Fortunately, Jeffrey's riad is conveniently close to the bar below, and after we drop our bags off in our vast upstairs room, we appear to be the only guests. He makes us a cup of tea, and we make his acquaintance. Jeffrey's from Sheffield. He found himself drawn to Fez years back, began renovating buildings for other people, and soon found himself owning one. Figuring that we don't fully have time to explore the Medina's famed maze without assistance, our bus to the desert departs from here in just 24 hours. We have him hire us a guide for tomorrow morning. And then we just have time to rush out for dinner at the Clock Cafe, conveniently close to our Riyadh, on the Tala Kabira, the Big Slope. My friend Jenny from South London recommended it to me on social media. She'd visited the city a year or so ago on one of the cheap flights from the UK that makes Europeans so much more well-travelled than Americans. But she's not alone. It's in all the guidebooks. I'm not sure exactly what I expected, but after a few minutes there, looking at the menu, studying the decor and conversing with our waiter, I establish I've been here before. In Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There's probably a place just like it in your home city too. There is one subtle difference in that when I order the almond milk for dessert, being told that it is hot and flavoured, and presuming it will satisfy my vegan requirements where the famed local apple pie will evidently not do so, I get a steaming hot cup of cow's milk, instead flavoured with almonds. I chuckle to myself that it's right up there with the baby milk formula I bought in Malaga, thinking it was rice milk. Ah, well. As the others gobble up their apple pie with great satisfaction, it does cross my mind that we could have hired a taxi driver direct from Chef Shower. If it was $100 for our San Franciscan friends all the way from the desert, chances are I'd have negotiated the fare for considerably less than 50 That would still have been more than... All right, let's add them up. One, two, three. Uh, four small taxis, one grand taxi and one bus fare for the day, times three, of course, for the bus fare, but not by much. It would have been more comfortable, more punctual, and as sole passengers, we might even have been allowed to insist our driver didn't play chicken with oncoming trucks. We could have done that. But hey, we'd have missed out on all the fun. And besides, Noel seems unaffected in the extreme. The next day, he updates his journal as part of his daily work routine. His entry for this Sunday consists of the following in totality. 1. Took bus to City Kasime. 2. Took Grand Taxi to Fez from there. 3. Ate great food. Apple pie. 4. Sleep at hotel. It was just a travel day. If you enjoyed this travel story and would like to hear more of them, please let me know. I give out the social media and email addresses in the credits, or you can find them in the show notes on your app, on your phone or computer. All feedback is appreciated. Now, if you're new to this show and you want to hear more of these stories, you're in luck because the one you just listened to would, chronologically, come before the other three that I've read over the course of One Step Beyond 31 episodes. Those other three stories can be found at episodes 15.5 
I put the first one out as a quote bonus, and then episodes 24 and 26. I'd actually like to talk just a little more about travel stories, travel diaries, in fact, and the long-term benefits of keeping them. For my part, on that round-the-world trip, I largely just kept notes. I'd write furiously in an exercise book when the whim took me, sometimes composing entire short stories or, or diary entries on long bus rides or on evenings where we were staying put for a day or two and we had time, and sometimes just jotting down memories from the last few days, maybe snippets of conversations I wanted to remember verbatim, such as the pearls of wisdom from Suresh at Honey Valley in Karnataka in India, as quoted on You Do Not Need a Guy. That was the last short story, episode 26. You see, I had the benefit of the fact that Noel, our son, was keeping a journal as part of his agreed written schoolwork for the year, and also I had the photos that I took on my iPhone. However crappy they may have been, they were all uploaded to the cloud, time-stamped, and come with geodata. means I can revisit the entire journey anytime I want, really, between Noel's written or my photographic forms of souvenirs. That Unlimited capacity for photos was absolutely not an option going back really only a few years. Indeed, many of us, I speak for my generation and those before me, grew up without cameras entirely. And that's why I'm so grateful that my mother kept detailed diaries of almost every international journey she ever went on. And as you're about to hear, there were many. I'm grateful that she then had the wisdom to type them all up, either immediately upon return or otherwise down the years that they were then stored in one clearly labelled folder, kind of marked for posterity, and that a family friend scanned many of them a few years back. You see, my mother has dementia now, and as with, I would imagine, almost anyone who suffers from this cruel illness and was in a care home during the pandemic, her loss of memory worsened over the last year plus. She didn't leave the thankfully safe and secure surroundings of her care home for at least 13 months, And when she did, unfortunately, it was for the first of three trips to hospital, the latter of which necessitated a two-week stay to stave off a potential escalation of shingles into an attack of uh, encephalitis, which is a debilitating brain disease. It was when she got hospitalised for the two-week period that I rushed over to the UK ahead of an intended trip the following week anyway, and I stayed through her hospital stays remaining week and the two weeks of enforced precautionary quarantine back at the care home. Even as she got her physical strength back a little bit while I was there, it was evident my mother's memory had receded terribly. She was having trouble identifying me as anything other than a person she knew was close to her in some way, but couldn't name. And that was perhaps because she just couldn't seem to remember anything specific beyond the age of 18, including, sadly, motherhood. The memory up until then is great, by the way. So I knew she'd written these diaries and I brought some of them into the care home so we could read through them together. The one I honed in on was maybe the most special journey for her of all. As a member of the London Bark Society, Singing choral music, specifically that of Bach, was a constant in her life for literally about 70 years. She got to tour Israel in 1967, just after the Six-Day War. Her diary reflects her own wide-eyed wonder about the country, about its battles, recent and historic. And as someone who grew up Christian, she could barely believe she was seeing places referenced in the New Testament with her own eyes. And I believe it set her off on a long fascination with the history of the Middle East and a personal obsession of hers with ancient architecture, what others might more cynically refer to as ruins. 
Other than another tour with her choir, this time of the United States in 1971, and a visit to Pakistan uh, with a family friend, I believe that was in the 1980s. They had a host there, and my mother jumped at the opportunity. Other than those, she didn't really travel much outside of Europe, if at all, as far as I know, until she took early retirement from being a uh, state school teacher in her 50s, upon which she and a friend from the choir, who shared a fascination with travel and was able to apply some of it to her own work, began ticking off an amazing list of countries. My mother's diaries include trips to Syria, that was as recently as 2005, Iran, which she visited for a total eclipse of the sun, Many visits to Egypt, which she fell in love with, including one that detoured into Nubia, plus Jordan, Uzbekistan, Russia, even China. I know that she also went to Morocco, Tunisia and Turkey, although I'm not certain there are diaries. And I know she really wanted to go to Libya. She bought the guidebooks. I think there may even have been a trip actually uh, booked and uh, and even paid for. But things got just too rough in the last years of Gaddafi and uh, the trip was cancelled. Then there are her many, many journeys to the United States, because for a while in the late 1980s, both her sons were living there, after which my brother moved to Mexico, so she added that country to her list. It breaks my heart that she doesn't remember these journeys, but two key points. Because she wrote them down, she has left a memory for other people, like myself. And also, all is not lost. When I sat down with her and read her diary of that 1967 Israel tour, While she kept interrupting to say, oh, you do write well, and I had to remind her this was her writing, her diary, her journey, still something connected. She was able to recall some glimmers of singing somewhere overseas like this, the joy of being in a touring choir, a vague sensation of being in biblical lands welcomed by the people there, of some kind of sensational once-in-a-lifetime experience. I feel like we have some sort of entry point now to try and chisel a little more opening into whatever memory has been additionally frozen by the pandemic. And maybe I wouldn't have that if she hadn't kept these diaries. Now, I've never read many of her diaries in detail, even though some of them have been scanned for a few years. I've always figured I have the rest of my life to do so. But I realise now that I don't have the rest of her life to do so. And so I also sat with her and read from a couple of shared adventures. One was from the summer of 1972. I was eight, my brother was 11, my mother would have been 38 and newly separated. And she determined to take her kids on a camping trip to the Dodogne Valley in the south of France to establish her independence and prove her ability to that she could do things on her own without our father. I have really vivid memories of this trip. I'm blessed, I think, with an amazing memory for detail. And It almost brought me tears of joy to unearth this diary after literally 49 years and find that my memories were accurate. What I recalled, I mean, just one example about falling in a lake, just the kind of thing you remember from when you're eight years old. It's in there. It's exactly as I remember it. On a totally different note, my mother also typed up diaries of visits to see me in New York City, Christmas 1990 and Christmas 91. And we went through the one from 1990, partly together, and then I finished that one off on my own. It was an especially mad period of her life, and her trip recounts that. We booked her into a hotel predominantly used by backpackers and local waifs and strays. Uh, That was largely because, believe it or not, there were no other affordable hotels south of Midtown in those days. I mean, Manhattan was not a desirable place to visit in 1990. Now, 
It so happened that I was moving into my first ever New York apartment that Christmas. It was coincidental, wasn't planned for her trip. And it was actually the first apartment I ever had my name on the lease for in any country. And I took it with my then girlfriend and future wife for 20 plus years, a mother of my two children. And that would be Posey, the same wife cited in the story you just heard. By coincidence, my friend Jenny, who was also name-checked in this episode's travel story, was in New York City for part of the time on her own adventures. It was just a crazy whirlwind of activity that involved several 20-hour days, me standing on the floors of my apartment, a journey I took to Pennsylvania for a TV shoot just before Christmas, and a Christmas day that involved two locations in New Jersey for celebrations, followed by my regular club night at the Limelight in New York City. Yes, we stay open for Christmas Day in New York. We don't close for nothing. For which my mother baked 200, yes, honestly, 200, it's in the diary, mince pies in our tiny new railroad kitchen for a Christmas party we were hosting for fellow expats in the VIP room. I was so glad to be reminded of all these details because for me that period's just like one mad haze of 20-something activity. Again, sadly, I don't think she recalled anything about this journey when I read it back to her, but I'm so, so grateful to have that souvenir and I'm going to take my time reading her other diaries perhaps even knocking them into shape as I do. And that brings me to another point. My mother's often said to me, my diaries will be worth a fortune, you know. Unfortunately, they won't. They're diaries, not memoirs, not travel books. There is a difference. You know, I don't presume to be the best writer on the planet, but I do know enough about that difference to know that if you want to tell a travel story, you have to at least try and make it universal. You need to, in short, make it into a short story. It can be clinically factual or it can take a little poetic license. You can put yourself at the heart of it or you can make yourself just a a voyeur. But either way, it needs to fulfill the basic tenets of creative writing. And sometimes the very worst travel diaries are those where the writers try to fulfill those tenets but massively overreached. If you want to hear a truly terrible example of this, as read by the author who knows what a terrible example it is, I totally recommend you listen to Season 2, Episode 13 of Dimed Out, entitled Reading from My Travel Memoir, in which the now fully expat Brit Malcolm Foster rediscovers the book he tried writing about his first trip to the States, but abandoned five years back, and I would say for good reason. By the way, I have written some terrible stuff in my own life. My first attempt at my memoir uh, was written as a novel. It is so atrociously bad, and I still can't believe I shared it with people. Um, I will never be able to get that privacy back. Anyway, bravely, he reads, this being Malcolm, from the first two chapters, which describe in excruciating detail his arrival in New York City for the first time. His own podcast description uses phrases like cringeworthy thoughts, overly descriptive writing, anxiety, catastrophizing, the facing of demons, and even a little bit of poignant insight. And that is true. There is some. Malcolm's actually reading this for the first time in five years. It's like me reading my mother's diaries, just sort of knowing they're there and not having looked at them down the years. And he accompanies the actual memoir reading with real-time embarrassment and apologies and no shortage of the expression, oh my days, something that I'd noticed has caught on in recent years and which I need someone to explain to me the origins of. Now, frankly, the entire opening chapter could have been summed up in two sentences, but I laugh not at, I promise you, but with Malcolm, as hard as I have on any podcast in recent times. 
The rest of his Dined Out podcast has nothing to do with travel, and he apologizes if this was your entry point. But you know what? It was my entry point, and no apology needed. The story was apology enough. Go listen. I haven't come across too many other shows that deliver the first-person narrative. I've mentioned baggage claims several times, and I'd also like to give a shout-out to Strangers Abroad. It's hosted by Adrian Benn, a thoroughly good writer, who typically narrates a first-person experience with good use of background sound and or music, and then uses that as a jumping-off point for a deep dive on whatever topic she's just raised in that introduction, usually via interviews and some proper journalism. Adrienne, who has the same sort of Brooklyn, upstate New York roots as many a person I know here, and who's very, very well-travelled internationally, has just started a new mini-series entitled Road Trip, and it's about her own very, very first venture across America, right here, right now in 2021, at what we all hope are the waning stages of the pandemic. In the 10-minute introduction that dropped in mid-June, she connects the world's long litany of pandemics to our lust for travel, effectively blaming herself for COVID. It's a good discussion point, and if we were at Debate Club, I would respond with some thoughts of my own, but I appreciate her high moral ground and the general tone of the pod. I also enjoyed hearing all the shit I've learned abroad reflect recently on how travel changes you for the better in one episode and how to stay grounded while traveling. And I hope that Big and White, who lived and worked in Nepal and recently got back to the States after their adoptive country's long, long lockdown, will continue their show beyond the last episode seven weeks ago, Crazy Places We've Slept. A couple of quick updates on our previous guests and my own activities. I mentioned at the end of my long interview with Mike Peters on episode 27 about the hike he was embarking on with his wife Jules, another cancer survivor, along Offers Dyke, which more or less follows the England-Wales border. It's 177 miles long. They set themselves 12 days. And if that doesn't sound extreme at an average of 15 miles a day, then it's fair to say that the exposed nature of the British landscape, meaning exposed to both feet, sunshine you get in the summer, and you do get sunshine in the summer. I got mine. And the rain, because you certainly do get rain in the English summer as well. I got mine. The endless ups and downs of a hike like this and the the grueling terrain underfoot really, really took its toll on them. I checked in with Mike at one point. We had had uh, vague hopes I could join him somewhere on his hike. And he wrote that he really thought he'd bitten off more than he could chew this time. And that from someone who's climbed to Everest Base Camp and up Mount Kilimanjaro, Mount Fuji and others besides to host concerts for his Love Hope Strength Foundation slash charity at the summits. The Offers Dyke trek was also to raise funds. And of course, Mike and Jules did complete their journey. Mike then had the fun of presenting his song for the Welsh national football team at their last home friendly game before they embarked on the Euros 2020, delayed, as we've noted, despite its name, a year by the pandemic. The Red Wall of Camry, to give Wales its Welsh pronunciation, hopefully, in its own language, fulfils all the requirements of a good football anthem. It's big, bold and brassy. It's optimistic about the future while wearing its nostalgia on its shirt sleeve. It name-checks players and additionally, I appreciated that those players included women. And I also appreciated that the fans shown on the video were families and not just the kind of beard-up men that have so often been the cliché of the game, especially in the British Isles. 
Sales from Mike's single, the alarm single, The Red Wall of Camry, also went to benefit Love, Hope, Strength. Mike needs some of that for himself right now. Uh, with all this behind him, he then managed to fall off a country style while out on a cross-country run with his dog. It's always close to home, isn't it? He was diagnosed with a broken elbow, uh, which necessitated doing the rest of his promo for the Welsh national team with his arm in a cast. And while the women's game has been thoroughly overshadowed by Euros 2020, I am hoping that the success of the English team, who are into the last eight at the point that I am publishing this show, and the prospect of the final being held at Wembley, will generate a snowball of enthusiasm for the women's Euros, which have also been delayed a year and which are now scheduled to be held in England in July 2022. Erin Blankenship assured me that Equal Playing Field has some new world records on its agenda for the tournament, and I vow now to pay more attention to these games, this tournament, than I have in the past. All right, just before we go, a quick addendum to my post-interview report last time around about travel options close to home. How my visits to the Yorkshire Dales and Moors for long training runs for the Manitou's Revenge Ultramarathon I was signed up for here in the Catskills at the end of June had me visiting new villages, new terrain, and having just a little of that wide-eyed wonder I've already referenced. I should have added on that uh, little recount last time around that uh, in addition to those trips, I took one to Spurn Head. It's the peninsula that juts down from the southeast corner of Yorkshire across a few miles of the still vast Humber estuary, which itself then narrows into the Humber River. On the north side of the Humber sits the city of Hull, and just north of that, the town of Beverly. That's where I was born, and that's where I was staying. In recent years, I'd often wanted to visit Spurnhead. I guess for no other reason than it was there. It piqued my curiosity, and I guess there's that part of me that just always wants to get to the very end of the road. In these more recent years, before and even once my mother was in a care home, I'd suggest to her we take a day trip, and she always talked me out of it on the morning of. Her usual excuse was just the length of the drive, and, you know, she's not wrong. It was the best part of 90 minutes either way, there being no direct road. But the journey itself, either through East Hull, or, as I chose on the way back, the multiple villages of the East Riding, was itself part of the attraction, and the destination well worth the effort. I set off at 6.30 in the morning, was first in the car park just before 8, and then I jogged down the narrow peninsula all the way to the lighthouse and back, about three miles each way. Now, this strip of land is only 50 metres wide at some points. Obviously, that makes it prone to high tide flooding, which fortunately wasn't an issue the day I went. And you can easily stand on the bank there and see the North Sea on both sides of you. On the eastern seabound side, it's properly sandy beach. On the western estuary side, it's more of a marshland. And that, of course, attracts nesting birds. So I was joined as the morning wore on by a healthy number of bird watchers. That's not my hobby or habit, but I love that it is for other people. And I also like that there was a whiteboard up by the car park listing all the recent sightings in the area. I also loved or appreciated that I quickly realised my shoes would be a hindrance on this run, so I took them off early, put them by a marker, and I jogged barefoot on the beach most of the way. At the very, very southern tip, the peninsula expands into a wider circle. To be honest, from above, Sperm Head looks much the shape of its near namesake, a a sperm. Um, Just beyond the lighthouse, at the end of the head, I was surprised to find a community. I mean, like a living community with houses. All the more so, there's no actual road down there, only a path just wide enough for golf carts. It all made a lot more sense once I realised it was a lifeboat community. 
It was a reminder that the work of our first responders takes many shapes and forms and can involve a very isolated lifestyle. Now, Spurnhead was not the most beautiful place I've ever been, but it was a lovely place just to go on a sunny morning, to run barefoot, and then just to feel free, especially given the stress of this particular visit. I listened to the new album by the band James, entitled All the Colours of You. James's Tim Booth always seems to write lyrics that are pertinent to my life at the particular moment in time that he releases the songs. And when that album was finished, I listened to other albums by James. And when I got back to the car, I paid my £5 parking fee, which goes to the Spurn Natural Nature Reserve. I think I got that right. And I availed myself of the free cup of coffee that came with that parking fee, courtesy of the Discovery Centre. And it was a fantastic cup of coffee. There's so much bad coffee around. This cup was wonderful. I managed to buy a vegan granola bar, which was great because I was really, really hungry and I needed the coffee. And I returned from the trip, despite the lengthy drive home, properly re-energized and infused. Is there a moral to all of this? Well, maybe. Just that it's important to take time out for yourself and to scratch those itches you feel, however inconsequential they may seem, in the bigger scheme of things. As for Manitou's, well... I did not post the do not finish, so yes, if you figured out that double negative, I completed it. But I will save the details for next time. Thanks so much for listening along. Until the next show, stay safe, stay positive in all the right senses of that word, and be happy. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. The incidental music you hear now is by Noel Fletcher. The incidental music in the story A Travel Day is from the free music archive used under the Creative Commons license with exact credits and links to the full tracks in the show notes. Except for the sound of the call to prayer at the beginning of the story, which I recorded in Chef Shawan on January 22, 2016. The theme music is One Step Beyond by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. If you like, dislike, or just want to offer suggestions or feedback for this show, please do either email onestepbeyond at ijamming.net or find us on social media. Links are all provided in the show notes. If you can find time for a rating or a review on the app that you're using, it does help the show get greater distribution. And if you are listening online or on the radio, a reminder that you can subscribe slash follow on just about every podcast platform known to man. Please consider leaving something in the tip jar to help with the production and hosting costs. Look for the supporter badge in the show notes on your app or visit supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond. Thanks to Radio Kingston for broadcasting these episodes and a bonus thanks to everyone who listens to the very end. Peace. <laughs>